knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another RSO podcast. And once again, we have questions from our YouTube fans. And my lovely young assistant here, who, to whom I've been married for many, many years, has brought me this list. Number one from an RSO podcast from Mac. Mac asks, what are your thoughts on the 325 WSM? That's the Winchester Short Magnum. Is there something that holds it back? <laughs> yeah, there's something that holds it back and all the other WSM cartridges, but it's not ballistics, it's not bullet performance, and it's not effectiveness of field. It's a legal issue. Years ago, when these cartridges came out and were becoming quite popular, there was an individual who claimed to have designed them himself and I guess patented it or something. So he um, had a lawsuit against Winchester for infringement. And I don't know exactly how everything came down, but they agreed on a settlement of some kind. And the upshot of which was that Winchester Browning, I guess anyone who chambered a rifle for one of those Winchester short magnum cartridges would have to pay a royalty. So that kind of took the wind out of the sails, I think. So you can still make them. You can still chamber for them, but most brands, manufacturers of rifles, I think just sort of said, well, forget it. It's just more hassle than it's worth. I think that is my impression of what went down. Someone out there may have more accurate information, but that's essentially what slowed down the rising popularity of those short magnums. Now, you're going to get other arguments that are more pragmatic, which is, of course, that they really didn't do anything that longer older cartridges didn't do or folks didn't like the 30 35 degree angles on the shoulders i think all the shoulders on those were 35 degrees which i think is pretty reasonable for uh, a short fat cartridge like that when you talk about the benefits of keeping a shoulder sharper so you have less flow of the powder granules into the throat and that reduces the um, friction in the throat for wearing it more well, sooner than you would with, with a sharper angle. You get more combustion of the powder inside of the case. The validity of that, I am not sure of, but that's kind of what goes around. At any rate, some folks would say, well, oh, that sharp shoulder, that 35-degree shoulder slams up against the front of the magazine box so you don't get a good smooth flow of the cartridge into the chamber. It interrupts the chambering process. 
I have not found that to be the case, especially not when hunting <laughs> and you're in a big hurry um, and you're just forcefully moving that cartridge. I have never had a jam from that. Now, I could see it happening if you're going very slowly, so or bench shooting, for instance, and I think maybe that's where a lot of folks got the idea. Uh, they're working on the bench and they notice that it's a little bit hard to get it up and in. But boy, when I was out hunting and I've taken caribou and moose and elk with the 325 WSM and I didn't have any trouble with it or any of the other WSMs with those sharper shoulders. But then again, I've also liked a lot of the Ackley improved cartridges and they have a 40 degree shoulder. It's even <laughs> sharper yet. So um, I don't know if that's valid, but I think that's what's holding that uh, 325 WSM back. But the other thing that may be holding the 325 WSM back is its caliber. It's a 0.323 inch diameter bullet, same as the eight millimeters. And those just have not been all that popular in the US of A. We get up to about 30 caliber and we think we've got everything covered because we know they are deadly on elk. And a lot of folks use them on moose and even the big bears. So we really don't have a call for those bigger bullets. And then, of course, it's competing against the 338. So if you are going to go up to something a little bit bigger, most folks are more familiar with the 338 Win Mag, and you've got a less recoil out of the 338 Federal. That's not very popular, but, you know, there are options. So, yeah, there's a lot of competition out there, and I just think that's probably why the 325 WSM has just not really taken off. But... That doesn't mean it's not a great cartridge. I think it's probably the most efficient of all the WSMs just because you've got that wider bullet and it reduces the uh, the throat burnout and all the problems associated with a big powder volume and a narrow bore. So you're opening things up there. And of course, you're throwing some pretty significantly heavy bullets, 200 grains, 210 grains, 15 grains, maybe even a 220. So uh, yeah, it's a great little um, elk cartridge and it's a short action if you like a little bit lighter gun a little quicker handling you've got the short action advantage but that's kind of the story on the 325 i think it'll hang around for a while yet the 300 wsm i think is always going to be with us people have really taken to that just gives them essentially a 300 win mag in a shorter platform so the 325 can hang right there with it i think but time will tell all right question number two this is a youtube from Lord Mechanicus, Lord Mechanicus, not quite a title. And he asks, interestingly, I wonder how the 308 stacks up against the 8mm Mauser. Well, all right. Pretty good question. A 308, of course, is the 308 Winchester, shoots a 30 caliber bullet, 0.308 inches in diameter. The 8mm Mauser was the German military round, became quite popular with hunters as well. That started off shooting a 0.318 inch diameter bullet, and then they later changed it to shoot a 0.323 inch diameter bullet, which is standard for 8 millimeters these days. And this confuses the heck out of everyone, including me. The problem with eight millimeters and seven, all the millimeter cartridges is that those numbers are rounded off. In the imperial system of measurement, which we're more familiar with here in the US of A, you've got your calibers as 28 caliber, 27 caliber, 20, 30 caliber, 26, whatever they are. And then the bullets are usually a little oversized because you have to be to, to engage the rifling and fill the grooves so that you get full pressure behind that bullet so a 30 caliber would shoot a 308 inch diameter bullet 
And the eight millimeter, then when you're jumping around between 318 and calling it an eight millimeter, and then you suddenly got up to a 323 inch diameter bullet, you're still calling it an eight millimeter. Oh, goodness. And this is why you see some cartridges labeled as a 5.56 in the millimeter. That's a 223 Remington, 5.56, uh, the 7.62 for the 30 calibers. If you really want to get specific with your millimeters, I guess you have to have all those numbers in there. But it's just a lot easier to say, I'm shooting an 8 millimeter. That's somewhere in that 0.318 to 0.323 category, I guess. So the upshot is you're going to be throwing a wider bullet with the 8 millimeter Mauser. And that means you're either going to be a heavier bullet if you're keeping your BCs up there to match the 308s. Or you're going to have a shorter, stumpier bullet in the same weights. and or in a lighter weight, and your SDs are going to go down. And so the upshot is your eight millimeters throwing a heavier bullet, and it's not going to throw it quite as fast, but you are going to have more weight in the bullet, so you're going to have more energy at closer ranges. I think the 308 is going to win at distance for sure. But remember, the eight millimeter Mauser is so close in size to the 30 6 that a lot of uh, doughboys coming back after the war with captured Mauser rifles in eight millimeter, uh, Mauser would just have the um, chambers made to fit the 30 out six case. So they had a 30 out six, eight millimeter hybrid. And that was fairly popular for a while. But the eight millimeter Mauser, I think, could more closely be tied to the performance of a 30 out six. But just because of the higher volume and then those heavier bullets making it up and all, it's just surprisingly good performance. Just not all that popular here because obviously it was a German cartridge, not an American cartridge. And then there's the the bias against it. Anybody you go to war against, you're probably not going <laughs> to grab their cartridge for your favorite. But uh, there's certainly no reason why an 8mm Mauser can't work over here. I mean, it's just as versatile, I think, as the 30 6 and just as effective. 308, obviously, you're about 100 feet per second slower than the 30 out six with the same bullets. So you can use that for a benchmark against which to judge the 8mm Mauser. All right, this is uh, from Lil on YouTube. Lil asks This is a question. Oh, this is uh, editorial information for me, I think. This is a question about a photo and a caption on rifle scopes. Tough, durable, consistent. That's what you want in a hunting scope. Despite our best technology, HD glass, illuminated reticles, ballistic reticles, a dial turrets, parallax adjustment dials, and 8x zoom ranges, a rifle scope is still really just a front sight. Yes, it is magnified and it is glorified, but still it remains job number one, keep it pointing where the barrel delivers the bullet. That's what your scope is supposed to do. So the brightest, most powerful scope in the world is useless if it cannot hold its zero. So put durability first on your list of qualifications for a hunting scope. All right. That's a long way of saying my photograph of those scopes had that caption on it. Now we get the question from Lil. This seems like a topic that doesn't seem to see enough discussion. I hope Ron does a video on it. Or maybe I'll have to check his catalog for a video he may have already done. Well, Les, 
That's true, Lil. I have done several things on scope brightness and performance, and especially my blogs. Go to our ronspomeroutdoors.com, my blog site, and I've got a lot of detailed articles on scopes and how to judge them and what all these terms mean and how scopes are built and what makes them rugged and durable and bright and high contrast and all that wonderful stuff we look for. But I stand by my statement here that the number one job of a scope is to deliver the bullet where you're aiming. It's a sight. It's a glorified sight. So we all know that iron sights are darn rugged because they're iron and they're clamped onto the top of the rifle and they don't shake loose and there's no glass to break and all the rest of it. This was the early problems with scopes, of course, back in the day. They were a little bit fragile. So it took quite a while for them to become popular. But as they built more and more rugged durability into their scopes, Boy, then they really took off because most people recognize the advantage of having a bright, sharp image and large so you can see your target more easily and you can see that sight or crosshair on the target. And that's way easier than trying to see your rear sight and focus on your front sight and focus on a target to 300 yards away. Good Lord, that's hard to do. So there's the advantage of having a scope. So the scope sellers put a lot of emphasis on brightness. Oh my gosh, do they go overboard on the brightness thing? And then a little bit on the resolution, of course, because nobody wants a fuzzy, soft image in his scope. Not quite so much on contrast, although that's an important part of the image quality. Um, but they don't spend all that much time talking about how rugged and durable their scopes are. And if you've got the finest optical quality in a rifle scope, and it shakes loose so that the reticle no longer points consistently to the aiming point where it's supposed to be delivering the bullets. You're up the creek. You've got yourself a fancy telescope for wildlife watching, but you're probably not going to hit anything. So that's why I said durability is job one. Once you've got a scope that holds at zero all the time through all the battering and the knocking around and the recoil and everything else, then you can start worrying about a brighter image and uh, higher contrast and finer resolution. And maybe you can see eight moons around Jupiter or something. <laughs> Actually, you can see some moons around Jupiter with your rifle scope if you crank it up high enough. That's kind of fun. So, yeah, um, sticking by that. Look for a good quality durability in your scope. Oh, and then the question always comes up, how do I know that? And that's a really good question because you look at a scope and essentially it's a black box. You look on the outside and see if it's dented or the wheels don't turn on the turrets and the, and the power ring and things like that. But boy, inside things, that's where it shakes loose. That's where it breaks. And those lenses can be can be mounted inside with with screws and clamps or they can be glued in. There's all kinds of ways to set those inside. How do you know? Boy, it's tough. I think really the only way you can judge that is to go by the manufacturer's reputation, number one, and their guarantees. You know, if they say, hey, this scope is guaranteed against all workmanship and defects for your life or its life or something, that pretty much suggests that they don't think that they've made such a shoddy scope that it's going to fall apart and you're going to come complaining and want to get your money back or a new scope. So it suggests that it's pretty rare that your scope is going to break. But also know that scope wear is cumulative. You can think of a recoil. Most people think scopes break because of recoil. Well, what happens when a scope recoils is the parts inside want to move. Anything that's not anchored down wants to move. Well, there's one part in there that is designed to move, and that's the erector tube. It's the tube 
inside of the main tube, and that's what moves around when you're turning your turrets up and down and windage. You're pushing with the screws that you're turning that little turret on the inside or that little tube on the inside. That's the erector tube. And that's what's moving things around your image in relation to the crosshair, the reticle. And that's how you sight it in, zero it, and all that fun stuff. So every time that you shoot, that tube wobbles because it has a spring or two or even as many as four that hold it in place against the screw pressure from two directions. Sounds a little complicated, but it's fairly mechanically simple. The point is that the erector tube is bouncing on that spring, sort of like the leaf springs on your car or the coil springs around your, um, on your truck or anything else, and that spring is motion, then that's what breaks. It's fatigue, metal fatigue. It eventually wears out and breaks. It can break quickly with a big jolt, or it can wear out from metal fatigue over shot after shot after shot after shot after shot. and starts to get weak, and then your scope starts to not be consistent, but seems to still be there. But then it starts to wander a little bit. You're probably getting weak springs. And then if suddenly it's just anywhere and nowhere and you cannot adjust it, you've broken the mainspring. And that's when you probably need to get it fixed or a new scope. But it's amazing how many rounds they can take these days. Scopes are really quite rugged. All right. Good question, Lil. All right. This is a YouTube one from John. John says, there's no way a 308 has only three inches of drop at 300 yards, Ron. I like this channel. I watch it all the time and you're very knowledgeable, but I shoot distance all the time and I believe there are 13 inches of drop at 300 yards. Okay. He's referencing a video I said, and then I mentioned a certain drop out of a certain bullet from a 308 Winchester, I would imagine. And he says he thinks there's 13 inches of drop, not whatever I said. Ah, that I think is pretty easy to fix, John. It depends on where you've zeroed your rifle. So you've got to obviously consider the bullet and the, and the velocity. And then when you consider the bullet, you have to consider its ballistics coefficient. Because the higher your ballistics coefficient number, the more efficiently your bullet moves through the air, which means it's going to go farther before it drops. Gravity is always pulling at it at 32 feet per second, accelerating at 32 feet per second. So if it gets there faster, it's not going to fall as quickly. So you can shoot flatter at distance. So you have to know your muzzle velocity, your ballistics coefficient, and then where have you zeroed for your initial impact point? If you zero at 100 yards, yeah, you're going to fall a lot at 300 yards. But if you zero high at 100 so that you're dead on at 250, you won't fall very far at 300. And this is what everyone does with, with every cartridge and rifle. You just have to decide what you want for your maximum impact point above your line of sight. And the further you go with that, the further you can get downrange before you fall below your target zone. I It's called maximum point blank range. And you can set up any cartridge in any rifle to do that. So you just consider the uh, diameter of your target. And then you zero your rifle so that your bullet never rises above that when you're aiming at the middle. So if you aim at the middle of, say, a four-inch sized target, you can't go any higher than two inches or you're over the top of that target. So you have to zero two inches high at your maximum trajectory. And that's usually around 150 yards. Sometimes it's 180 or even as little as a hundred, depending on the bullet and its velocity and all that. But if you figure a deer's chest is, gosh, you probably got a good 14, 15 inches of vital zone in a deer's chest. I don't think you want to shoot seven inches up, <laughs> but a good 
round number is no more than three inches high. So you zero your rifle to strike three inches high at its peak, and that'll again be around 150 yards. And then it starts to drop, 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 drop. And when it drops below that six inch target, and then you are out of your maximum point blank range. And as I said on that 308 that I was discussing, that was with that particular bullet and velocity, it was about three inches of drop. So that'll uh, flatten your trajectory quite a bit, guys. All right, good one, John. All right, Maddie's from, oh, this is one of our patrons on Patreon. Maddie says, hello, Ron, and greetings from Norway. Hey, I apologize if I didn't pronounce your name right. I don't speak Norwegian very well if at all. <laughs> Might be Matisse, but I'm sure glad you wrote in because this looks like a pretty good question. He says, when I go to the shooting range here in Norway, many ask me about my rifles. Mostly, they are original wooden stock and blued barrel. I like those. They often take a good look at my cartridges as well, and they cannot tell what it is. I blame the likes of a 6.5 Creedmoor and all those German rifles with the option to change barrels for that one. The rifles that I bring to the shooting range are all made by Weatherby. <laughs> I truly love my Mark Fives, but sadly, here in Norway, they don't have the reputation they deserve. So, can you tell me about Weatherby in the U.S. and how people think about the legacy of Roy Weatherby? P.S. My first hunting rifle was a Mark V 300 Weatherby, and I still love it. Okay, good one. So, Roy Weatherby and the Weatherby cartridges. I guess those would be a little bit unusual over in Norway or any part of Europe. That was really an American phenomenon. Roy Weatherby, to my knowledge, was a Kansas farm boy um, and quite the inventor and really interested in shooting, obviously. So, during the 1940s, he was fooling around with high velocity. He had this idea that high velocity was really a great thing. I mean, a lot of people did back in those days. And he took the 375 H&H belted magnum cartridge and probably the 300 version of that, the 300 H&H. And he started fooling around with those. And this is what wildcatters do. They get a cartridge and they make it shorter or longer or fatter or sharper shoulder or somehow change it to improve the performance. So he was working with the uh, full-length 375 H&H, &H, necked it down to the 30, which H&H &H had already done with their 300. But it was an extremely tapering cartridge. It looks, it looks like a missile from the 1960s, like the original Mercury launch missile. And it uh, does not have sharp shoulders. They're just a real gradual shoulder to them. He wanted to sharpen that shoulder, push it farther forward, straighten out the sidewalls, and increase the volume. You're using the same length of action on your rifle, so not, why not increase the powder volume by changing that shape? So that's what he did, and he, of course, ended up with some screaming velocities. And he was, many people say, and I probably think they're right, he was more of a marketer than he was a ballistician. Although he created some incredibly fast and effective cartridges, what his real skill was was selling it. I mean, this guy was a salesman. He got out of Kansas and went to California because California, right? And then he developed this California style to all of his rifles. You know, the Monte Carlo stocks and the, and the diamond inlays and the rakish forend cuts on the tips. He would put rosewood tips on it. And the whole idea was 
look at this. And that's the key to marketing. That's why they use beautiful women to sell things. They want people to look. And then you see the product and you go, wow, that looks racy. In the 1950s and 60s, a Weatherby rifle was racy, but so was the cartridge. And not only did he make these really high-velocity cartridges, but he put something he called a double venturi shoulders on them. So instead of having a sharp junction on your shoulder where you go from the case to the shoulders, and then again another sharp bend into the neck, he made them gently rounded both times. So he would round the outside of the case, and then he would come up into the neck and round it again. And then he would claim that that improved the flow of the gases and that helped with the performance. And it was probably all snake oil. I don't know for sure, but oh my gosh, did his cartridges go screaming down range. So obviously the 300 Weatherby Magnum being larger than the later 300 Win Mag was faster by, gosh, I don't know, probably a couple hundred feet per second. Uh, maybe even 300. I have hunted with them both, and they're both great cartridges. But if you wanted to be the cock of the rock and have the fastest cartridge around in those days, you got a Weatherby because they were the fastest. And in fact, they were so successful that Remington and Winchester started to copy them. And that's how we came up with the 264 Win Mag and the 7 Rem Mag and the 300 Win Mag, all these belted magnums that erupted in the 60s. So, yeah, Roy Weatherby was quite the force. And he made a, a very successful company. And another smart thing he did was that he got his rifles in the hands of important people, especially movie stars. Once again, it's the California look. It's the California angle. It's the glitzy movie stars. And, of course, back in those days, people like John Wayne and Humphrey Bogart and all these Hollywood stars would go on big game hunts with their Weatherby rifles. And some of them would allow him to use their likeness in their image and what they had to say about their rifles in his sales ads. So the rifles were fairly high priced. The ammo was hard to come by because it was proprietary. Only uh Weatherby could load them or chamber the rifles for them unless you were a, a custom jobber. But Winchester wasn't building rifles in Remington or Savage or anybody else. So it really was a specialty deal. And that's what made Weatherby a kind of a household name in the hunting world. But dispensing with all of that hype, how effective are the cartridges? Well, obviously, as our friend from Norway here notices, that they're darn defective because they're shooting the same bullets as your 30 out six, for instance, in the 300 Weatherby Magnum. It's the same 308. So you're going to shoot the same bullets. One of the early problems was the bullets weren't up to that impact velocity. There's so much energy in those things that they would just blow to pieces. And then you get all the problems associated with that. Well, but once you get the right bullet, and you're driving it that fast, you've got farther reach, so it's easier to hit your target. And once that hard bullet gets there, it can do a lot of damage and take them down. And then there was the famous hydrostatic shock. This was a big selling point for Weatherby. He really pushed that. And some say he really went overboard with it because he would make statements like, if this, this bullet from this Weatherby Magnum is so fast that you can hit an animal anywhere and it will kill it from the shock. Even if you hit it in the back leg or the ham or the guts or something silly like that. Well, most of us know that that's way overboard because it just doesn't happen that way. 
Here's a YouTube question from Michael. What about that 3040 Craig cartridge? How does it compare to the 308? Ha! I don't know a lot about the 3040 Craig. It was sort of a temporary fix for the U.S. military. Uh, Norwegian, I think. Um, the Craig rifle was out of Norway, and so was this cartridge. It was a rimmed cartridge. Not a lot smaller than a 30 6 but a bit. Um, and obviously shot a 30 caliber bullet. I would imagine 3040 Craig meant that they were putting 40 grains of powder in it, whereas a 30 6 would be more like 58 grains of powder. So the 3040 Craig was not shooting as fast and flat and hard as the 30 6, which came later. But we had that Craig from roughly, gosh, that was probably right. Was that after that San Juan Hill and the Spanish American War? I cannot remember exactly, but around 1898 probably would have been when that was our official military round. But then by 1903, we had replaced it with the 1903, which was the predecessor of the Ot 6, the 30 Ot 6. So you, 3003 references 1903, and they had a 220 grain round nose bullet on it, and it didn't go all that fast, and it dropped a lot because it was round nose and it was inefficient. And that's about the time uh, in history when they figured out that spire point bullets with a higher ballistics coefficient were a lot more efficient at reaching downrange. So they went to a smaller bullet, and then they had to retrofit a lot of the 1903 Springfield bolt-action rifles to take the new cartridge with the new bullet with a different twist rate, maybe. I'm not sure exactly what they did there. But the upshot was that became the Ot 6, so it was still the 30 caliber. The case was just a smidgen shorter, and then you had your 30 Ot 6. So the 3040 Craig, I don't think that thing was around for more than maybe 10 years as our official military cartridge. So it's going to be shooting slower than the 308 Winchester in a little bit longer case. And then the rimmed case, it just does not feed all that well from, from most uh, stacked vertical magazines. Uh, the rim was kind of left over from the old days when we had a lot of rimmed cartridges like the 4570 and the 3030. All right, that's about all I can tell you about that 3040 Craig, although I do have some friends that have an old 3040 Craig rifle, and they really like those old things. I guess they're a lot of fun. As you can tell, Michael, I'm not an expert on the 3040 Craig by a long shot, but I'll bet we have some listeners out there who are. So if I got anything wrong on the 3040 Craig, please let me know and uh, fill me in. You know, for Stump the Chump here, I think my wife and Silas did a pretty good job. They're always trying to dredge up questions that they think I can't answer. <laughs> and the 3040 Craig is pretty close. But, uh, you know, that's the fun of this is that we like to share what we know, uh, but the trick on social media and all the different places that we pick up information these days is, is knowing whether or not the person delivering the information knows what he's talking about. And I'm going to admit right up front here, guys, this, this is stuff that I try to know, but I'm not an expert on everything. I might not even be an expert on anything. So Take what I tell you with a grain of salt. I try to get things right. I study this stuff, and I had a long career in it. But, boy, I can always screw up. <laughs> and half the fun here is catching me as I screw up. And I depend on you to do that and set everyone straight. For now, however, this is another episode of RSO Podcast, and I surely appreciate you folks jumping in and joining us here. 
Um, let us know how we're doing. And if there are any other topics you would like to see us cover, you can catch us at ronspomeroutdoors.com, our website. And our other YouTube channel is Ron Spomer Outdoors, where we cover a lot of ballistics and cartridges and rifles and shooting and what at all. Appreciate it. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Hunt honest and shoot straight. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, mule there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv don't miss mondays with into the blue brought to you by academy sports and outdoors every monday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment